HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and we're here as usual at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. So, uh, women in food often have fascinating stories. Um, my guest today has written a biography about Julia Child, but for her most recent book, she wanted to delve into the food lives of women who are not known for food. So what did, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt eat? What did she cook? Uh, what did uh, famous writers in, throughout history that we know, um, but we don't really know too much about what they ate. So um, I'm really pleased to welcome on the air Laura Shapiro. She is a longtime culinary historian and author of books like the aforementioned Julia Child biography. She's also written Perfection Salad, Women in Cooking at the Turn of the Century, and Something from the Oven, Reinventing Dinner in 1950s America. And she's joining us live here. Hi, Laura. Hi. Thanks so much for joining. And uh, What She Ate, Six Remarkable Women and the Food That Tell Their Stories. Um, I don't, I'm not really sure where to start because this is a very interesting concept. Um, were you trying to find sort of women with fascinating did you start with women that you admired throughout history and then trying to snoop 
into their food lives? Or It was a little or, like that. There okay. was a fair amount of snooping. You know, one of the great things about writing a uh, biography is that you go to a library and you get to read people's mails. One of my favorite parts mm. of working on Julia Child was because so all her mail was right there in the library. And and in fact, after I had finished that book, and if you if you know the the whole story of Julia, you know what uh, what a great time I had doing that research because she's so fascinating and it's such a great food story. When I finished, I thought I want to write another book about Julia. Well, they don't Who's let you the do other that. Other Julia that I can write, yeah. yeah, they don't let you do that. But um, but I started to think, you know, you don't have to have written a cookbook. You don't have to be a culinary professional. We all have a relationship with mm. food. All of these lives are going to be interesting if you look at them through food, at least if you think food is the most interesting thing in the world, which, mm. of course, I do. So um, so I started thinking about women um, who were interesting in some way, whose lives might open up, even if we knew a lot else about them. Mm-hmm. What else could we see if we if we looked at them through the lens of food? And that was kind of how I approached the process of gathering these six it made me it's it's such a fascinating idea um it made me wonder though if there's like a sort of conscious denial uh or of of trying to leave out these maybe mundane some so some people think aspects of a person's biography um i think a lot of uh in the past for hundreds mm. of years biographers they did stories. Like. They did the biographies of great men. And mm-hmm. as you know, great men would never have anything to do with food unless they happened to be maybe a bohemian artist who had a love of right. food Dolly or something. Or something. Yeah. something like that. <laughs> but um, but, uh, but on the whole, you know, the, the subjects of biographies were considered too important to, to have any petty interests uh, like food. Well, but also, you know, people delve into the sex lives, right? I mean, this is a... Actually, can I quote a little bit from your introduction? Sure. I thought this is really interesting. You write, history, biography, even the relatively new field of women's studies weren't producing what should have been floods of books on female life at the stove or the table. I couldn't figure it out. Surely women spent more time in the kitchen than they did in the bedroom, yet everybody was studying women and sex, and nobody was studying women and cooking except the company selling cake mix. Uh, That really struck me when I started to work on, this was uh, my first book, Perfection Salad, which was about uh, women and cooking at the turn of the 20th century, and I was really interested in what was happening in those late 19th century kitchens People hadn't talked about it. And this was the time, this was really the dawn of the women's movement right. and women's studies and people taking a huge so interest in women's history. So maybe there was like a history. conscious uh, separation or like wanting to distance ourselves from the the cliches uh, of, of women in dis- domestic roles or domestic things. And there's, you know, there's more to a women's life than, you know, exactly. providing for their family and so it forth. It was exactly yeah. that. The things you were supposed to be writing about in those days were women in politics, women in power. Women, women really achieving in 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 all these uh, huge important ways, and the stories of women's lives at home, doing housework, doing the incredibly tedious kind of life defining things that women have always done, mm-hmm. were just not considered important. And especially the cooking at the turn of the 20th century, which really had a fair amount of Jello in it. This was <laughs> really considered not important. <laughs> well, I, I mean. It's funny because, you know, I, I have to start with Eleanor Roosevelt, for example, because she didn't really think about food. She didn't care about food, it seems like. 
She thought she didn't care about it. She wanted to not care about it. She wanted to deny any interest. Exactly. And her family and friends all said she didn't care about it. And she herself said, oh, we have no interest in food. And, of course, she had this huge public life. Right. So I'm too important, you know. I got too many bigger fish to fry. Well, she would never have said she was too important for it because she knew that it was central to the lives of most women. And, And for that reason, she respected it and... Actually, there was a time in her life when she took some cooking lessons because she wanted to know what it was like to have a life like that where you didn't have servants and you were going to have to put a meal on the table. She wanted to understand that kind of living, but she herself always did have servants and didn't have to live that way. So she respected food and cooking, but, uh, but the idea of, you know, going out for the sheer pleasure of enjoying a wonderful meal... It just kind of wasn't in her worldview, except, as I found doing the research, a lot of that kind of abstemious part of her relationship to food was all tied up with the White House, with being married to FDR, with her marriage, with a lot of the issues that kind of went through her whole identity as a woman, as a, as a mother, and uh, as a wife. She felt that those were whole areas of her life where she'd been a failure. You know, FDR Mm. had strayed. Her children were really closer to their grandmother than they were to her. So that whole part of the kind of women's domestic world was a fraught area for her. And and food was was part of it. But when you look at some of those letters, when she got out of the White House, when she was with her friends, these wonderful women friends that she loved, or after the White House years when she was pursuing this fabulous public career on her own, you start to see these incidents, these meals, these food occasions where she is as enthusiastic as anyone else. It's like her appetite her own, returned because huh? huh. she was a happy person. Wow. Wow, that is really fascinating. And, and you know, it's funny because Eleanor Roosevelt is one of those first ladies... Uh, you think of her subverting the role of of the first lady, um, which was all sort of domestic before and sort of public, you know, and taking care of the White House um, uh, food <laughs> and parties and so forth. Yes, and in fact, when they uh, when they moved into the White House after Roosevelt's first uh, inauguration, he asked Eleanor to be. Uh, in charge of the domestic side of the White House, mm-hmm. to hire a housekeeper, mm-hmm. to oversee the menus, and to uh, to sort of, I mean, not to work in the kitchen, but to be the person who oversaw all of that. And she, of course, took that on. This was the job of a first lady. Fine, yeah. she would do that. What she did was she went and she went out and hired the least prepared, least adequate person on earth, Mrs. Nesbitt, to run that kitchen because uh, it was a was she a woman that she knew. Uh-huh. From, she knew from Hyde Park. She knew that she was a good Democrat and a very nice woman who oh had raised gosh. a family and needed a job. And Eleanor thought, okay, let's have her do this. <laughs> Neither of them really understood what, uh, oh, what was at stake here and, and what was going on. And the food in the Roosevelt White House went on to become 
just the worst in the history of the presidency. I, I and- was cracking up during these parts. Um, like the staff frequently complained about the food, it sounds like. And then Ernest Hemingway was invited and he said it to the White House and he said it was the worst meal he's ever had in his life. Everybody who <laughs> ate there, they would write back, they would say, we loved meeting FDR. Eleanor Roosevelt was a wonderful, warm person. But the food. <laughs> what? What a funny thing to fill in. I mean, I have this, like, perverse pleasure in reading about, like, horrible meals. Like, overcooked lamb. <laughs> there was, like, actual people, like, went on to describe how bad this food was. They really did. <laughs> they cracked me up. They really oh, did. And, uh, you know, and everyone kind of automatically blamed Eleanor because she mm. was in charge of it and she was in charge of Mrs. Nesbitt. In a sense... Yes, she was, she was to be blamed because she didn't make any particular efforts to improve the situation. She didn't complain. Yeah. And she herself uh, wasn't complaining. But, you know, it was so tied up with her issues about marriage and about, mm-hmm. and about uh, being the wife and being the mother. It, it's like it was, too, it was just too much of a fraught area for her. The other thing that happened was that uh, during the 20s, before he became president, Eleanor had discovered the home economics movement, which was when I was in seventh grade. It was the class that you took where they taught Sewing, you to make these ridiculous yeah. hostess aprons and make these horrible little baking powder biscuits. Mm. But when it was uh, being generated in the late 19th century, home economics was a real reform movement, or so it hoped to be, for women, a way to uh, to raise the level of housekeeping, make it a scientific occupation mm. to uh, to raise like healthier families and have you know sanitary homes and n- nutritious cooking and Eleanor loved all these ideas it was a way to look at homemaking and domestic life through the lens of kind of business and management and science things she could get a grip on she couldn't get a grip on love and good cooking in our happy family that was beyond her but she could get a grip on using science and the principles of nutrition to plan a menu. That made sense to her. So when she took over the White House kitchen, she introduced some of that kind of thinking. She she wanted Mrs. Nesbitt to apply some of those principles. It didn't exactly happen, but this idea of economical food, and remember, they're doing this in the Depression. They were mm. on a very tight budget, mm-hmm. so it was not going to be fancy under any circumstances. Sure. But, uh, but it would be economical food that would be nutritious, that, that would sort of adequately f- feed people. It would not look flashy. She did not want the White House to look like they were putting on all these banquets right. in the Depression and of having course. a high old Champagne time there. and so yes. forth, yeah. And believe me, she needn't have worried. Nobody <laughs> ever thought that about the White House in those years. But but there were so the, but there were these outside kind of political reasons why wow. the food was bad. You know, it makes me realize that you know food choices are very. Uh, it shows a lot about somebody's politics and their philosophies and what they were trying to accomplish. Oh, very much. Or portray or project. And it, it kept me wondering, though. I wonder, um, have you ever thought or researched about Hillary Clinton's food <laughs> life? <laughs> I would have I loved to have uh, to have known what um, what the what thinking was, yeah, or what the thinking was in that kitchen. You know, she had it in her to be just as progressive and kind of uh, revolutionary a first lady as Eleanor Roosevelt had been, but she was uh, under such 
intense and often antagonistic scrutiny from mm-hmm. the press and everybody else that uh, she had to kind of constantly package herself as the good wife, as it were. Mm-hmm. And uh, she she didn't have Eleanor's scope. Ele- you know, Eleanor went into those coal mines and traveled and did all those things. And it was a little harder for, her, for Hillary. And I think... Uh, her relation to the kitchen would have expressed some of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm really like, I'm fascinated now to know about every single first lady and their <laughs> food and, and also presidents, you know, it says a lot. You see so many contrasts from, from time to time. And certainly nowadays, you know, people have talked about the difference between Obama and Michelle Obama's White House and Trump's and, oh gosh, there's so much to say about that. I know. Well, Michelle Obama actually uh, was the second first lady. Eleanor Roosevelt was the first to sort of think about food as a real statement mm. in the White House. And Michelle Obama was the second. And she really did it. She had the freedom. And also it was in the kind of political air mm-hmm. of the time to improve the way Americans were eating and to deal with obesity and these uh, crises we're having. Mm-hmm. So she poured herself into that effort. And that was quite remarkable. There really have been only two first ladies who have taken food seriously mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, there's so many more fascinating lives throughout this book. Um, so you cover also, just um, to recap, um, the, live, uh, the lives of Dorothy Wordsworth, the sister of, of William Wordsworth, who was also, and she was also a writer in her own right, and Rosa Lewis, Lewis, an Edwardian-era caterer, and she was once known as just the most famous lady chef in all of England, um, Eva Braun, Hitler's mistress, uh, Barbara Pym, a witty novelist from, from Britain, post-war Britain, and Helen Gurley Brown, the long-standing editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan. Um, I mean, such a mixed bag there. <laughs> a very motley crew, and I've often wondered about having them all sit down together yeah. and just kind of <laughs> pass, a, pass a bottle around and just see what they all said. <laughs> I want to ask more about why you chose this group of, or gathering, if you will, of ladies um, right after a quick little commercial interlude, and we'll be right back to more. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. One of the nice things about Bob's Red Mill is it's the only that I know of national supplier that's easily available for lots of interesting, hard-to-get grains and other seed products. So, you know, before Bob's Red Mill became widely available, you couldn't go get something like quinoa very easily, or you couldn't go get spelt easily in small quantities. But now you go to any one of the huge number of stores that carry Bob's Red Mill, and you can get smaller amounts of these really interesting, fun things to play with. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, I'm Patrick McAndrew, host of Why Food on Heritage Radio Network a show about creators, entrepreneurs, and visionaries in the food industry and the stories behind their success. Tune in on Thursdays at 2 p.m. to journey through stories marked by triumphs, failures, and insights. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to become a member today. (laughs) 
All right, we're back chatting more with Laura Shapiro, author of the new book. It's actually coming out this Tuesday, so we're getting a sneak peek. Uh, what She Ate, Six Remarkable Women, and the Food That Tells Their Stories. Uh, we were just uh, just going through you know, who they were, and I'd love to find out a little bit more about why you assembled this group. Did you research a million people and just narrow it down to this? or There was some of that. There were women mm-hmm. that I just could not uh, fit into this particular group because uh, there was no paper trail telling me ah. what, in fact, they had so eaten. the trail and went they, cold at some point. Yeah. It did, because, you know, most people who write diaries or memoirs or leave packages of their letters for their children and grandchildren, to, they just don't uh, put down anything about what they ate. It's so interesting. You look at these 19th century diaries, and it's, you know, they write about the weather, they write about Aunt Ella coming for a visit, but, but they are not putting down what they had for lunch. So... I needed to have women who uh, who had created some kind of documentation about the food, and that also meant that they had to be women of some stature, mm-hmm. some some name, because where you uh, could research, yeah, yeah, who who lent themselves to life in libraries. So that was one limiting factor, and then the other ones. Uh, some of these women, uh, Dorothy Wordsworth, for instance, was one of the first people because it was really her food story kind of helped get me into this. Oh, yes. Tell I, us about why you got inspired to write this book. I uh, I knew a little about her. I knew that she was there in the Lake District in this beautiful area, keeping house for her brother William, and I knew that she was ecstatically happy in those years. And and I had actually been to Dove Cottage and seen the place. But, uh, but so one night I had insomnia, and I was looking for something that would be kind of easy and relaxing to read, and I pull out a little book about Dorothy Wordsworth, and I think, okay, I'll just be wafted to the Lake District, and then I'll get back to sleep. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading about her, and it is very nice. It's the little gooseberry tarts, and they're mm-hmm. going to the orchard and pulling the apples off the trees, and she's just she's just happy, and she's writing the Grasmere Journal, which is this beautiful record of their days and times. And then I skip a few chapters. Suddenly... She is very far from the Lake District. This is 25 years later. William has gotten married. He has a family. She's now keeping house for her nephew in this kind of godforsaken village. And uh, and there's a housekeeper who puts on the table for dinner one night, one afternoon, black pudding. I start Black pudding. Black pudding. This is made this is blood. from pig's blood and oatmeal. It's a countryside uh, thing. People, yum. People have been eating it for hundreds <laughs> sure. of years and loving it. But I, it doesn't say Dorothy Wordsworth to me. She was a dainty, delicate. I mean, she was tough, but she was Black dainty pudding, and delicate. Yeah. And they were middle and upper class, and they were educated and genteel. If they had black pudding, it was going to be maybe a little bit for breakfast. It was not dinner. It, that was, it was very kind of rugged, rugged, lower-class country people were going to mm. eat that. You're talking about a big sort of mess of blood and oatmeal. So I thought... <laughs> What you know? This is the this is the young woman who was making the gooseberry tarts and stuff, and here she is looking at this. What what does it mean? What is it saying? How did this happen? How did the meeting between Dorothy Wordsworth and this black pudding ever take place? And what happened afterwards? And I thought, you know, you could look at that. You could take a woman like Dorothy Wordsworth, who has been much written about. And you could explore her life through the food, through this meal, and uh, and compare it to the 
what she had eaten back in those idyllic days mm. at Dove Cottage, and maybe it would tell you something you hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. So that gave me some of the ideas for proceeding with this book. And then, so she was the first, and then Barbara Pym, this wonderful novelist who published in the 50s and 60s and uh, wrote these wonderful kind of witty, satirical just uh, perfect novels. They're really mm-hmm. perfect about mm-hmm. uh, life in London and British villages and these families. And they are always wonderful kind of women in sensible shoes and cardigans who are mm-hmm. very, very funny in this wonderful kind of subtle way that mm-hmm. she has. Those books are full of food. I have been reading those novels for years and always hoping for a chance to write about Barbara Pym. When I looked back and I saw the food pouring through those books, and it turns out that Barbara Pym's own letters and diaries are also full of food, I thought, this is it. This is my moment. Now I get to write about Barbara Pym. So so she was an obvious one. And so I, I filled it in with people that I kind of knew of or they were worth exploring. It's really wild now that I think about it that more writers didn't take advantage of food as a literary tool to help reflect their characters and the circumstances like black pudding as opposed to, you know, idyllic cherry picking or whatever before is a really great, um, you know, staunch contrast to to set. Uh, It appealed to me. It really appealed to me. Dark, you know, mealy, something yes. about that is so full of like literary meaning. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and if you see, I think you see more food in fiction than you do in uh, in nonfiction and in biography. Sure, but I can't think of any Jane Austen novels that deal with any description of food. Do you? There's it comes okay. it comes up occasionally. You see it some, and there's a Jane Austen cookbook. There's a Jane Austen everything. Um, okay, I know that you know, we just celebrated be, her life, her yes. birthday last week. Yeah. Exactly. So there mm-hmm. is, uh, throughout the novels, things things come up and things do. But as often as not, it's, uh, they went into dinner. After dinner, they, <laughs> you don't know what was on the table. It's infuriating, yes. <laughs> I mean, there's so many meetings that could be drawn from that. Okay, let's talk about Helen Gurley Brown. This is the most recently um, deceased uh, women woman is that correct or maybe yes, not yeah okay. yes she was she was the one she lived uh you know into the 21st century mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh she was famous in her lifetime for being glamorous. very glamorous and very very thin uh-huh. and uh the more i read about her the more i realized that being, yeah being thin was was kind of the leading focus of her life as a woman there was no worthy life uh, as a as a female mm. unless you were sexy and sexy meant thin that was it 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 just it ended there so no matter what your accomplishments were and to this extent she was a feminist in that she felt women should do absolutely anything they wanted and they could achieve the highest the lowest anything it's all fine with her but you had to catch a man and the only way to catch a man was to be thin so, so that was the package. That's Thanks, what drove her. Helen Gurley Brown. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, okay. You write also that she had almost nothing to eat but diet Jello. I That's know. a thing for small addicts <laughs> and diet Jello. Okay. <laughs> it's she, like water. Mine's just made with all well, eat water. It's, it's it's water and kind of flavored rubber is mm. what it really was. She made it with one 
fourth the amount of liquid that you're supposed to mix into the powder. So you have this artificially sweetened jello powder, gelatin powder, probably red, and she mixes it with as small amount of water as you can possibly do to oh. get it dissolved. And then you chill it. And at the end, you have a... You, you have this rubbery chemical red thing. And she devoured that. One package was supposed to serve four people. She said, are you kidding? Four people? She ate the whole thing once a day with uh, fat-free yogurt. And this was, and twice on weekends, she allowed herself a double portion of this. What? I mean, you have to be nuts. And, and she was. Now let's remember. She lived a long time. She was unbelievably successful, made a fortune of money. Uh, spoke all the time as a as a kind of a guru of wisdom and self actualization mm-hmm, for women, mm-hmm. even though the message was very contradictory and basically very screwed up. But <laughs> she she was she was a huge success, yeah. certainly by sure. her own standards and uh, and by the standards of the world. And her remaking of Cosmopolitan magazine stands to this day as one of the most incredible turnarounds in publishing that has ever happened. It was a kind of stumbling magazine sort of aimed at women. She took over uh-huh. in two seconds. They were selling more ads than any women's magazine had ever sold and they were it was clearly Cosmopolitan did not have a food section or recipe. She <laughs> did. She, she did? Yes, because oh. she wanted to get food and liquor advertising in it, so she needed some stories. But this was hilarious. She had an absolutely unerring eye for everything else in the magazine, the stories about work, the stories about about dieting, about fashion, about success, all these, and, you know, relationships. She knew exactly what would be successful in that. She just assigned them, ran them, that was it. Food, she was all over the map. She could never figure out what uh, she she could run dieting stories she was sure of those but what kind of food stories it was such a foreign concept mm-hmm. to her and she was so unsure of it and so afraid mm-hmm. of it so she had food stories that would be so you know difficult and elaborate you'd see them in you know saveur today or mm-hmm. something and then she had stories that were you know well open a can of this and mix it with a box of wow. that and serve it all over the place it yeah. was all the food had no consistent personality in yeah. in that in mm-hmm. that everything else was right on the money the food was all over the map well certainly in um the last few decades um you know, food is such a big part of the social life and um, having, you know, a taste for all kinds of food, sophisticated food, uh, international foods is sort of like a, you know, it's like a, there's a weight to that. And there's, and maybe it wasn't, you know, in her time, but uh, how would you go about, you know, eating just jello when you have all these social engagement to, 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 to do? She, apparently, she would, she talks about this in one of her later books. Mm-hmm. She would go to parties and they're, uh, you know, passing around the Fogger, desserts. I don't know. Yeah. They're passing around the desserts and she would pass them around. She would skip it herself, <laughs> but she would pass them around. She, okay. would be, she said she used to pour. Uh, champagne into a potted plant to get it out of her hand. <laughs> she, she really, she worked very hard at resisting food, and uh, and she was proud of it. Mm-hmm. She was proud that she was so skinny. She was proud that she had what she called this immense discipline, and uh, and she thought everybody should live like that. Wow, wow. So you're, I mean, everyone's perspective on food says so much. It is really true, like Briette Severin said. What you eat, uh, tell me what you eat. And I'll tell you who you are. I sure think so. I sure think so. And it's in the telling. It's the way people talk about themselves and food. 
It's and not what they won't tell, too. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's where you have to be a little bit that's creative. That's why you dug around <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to see what they were hiding. Um, I think this is just just fascinating. And we didn't even get to everybody here, <laughs> but it looks like we're about out of time for today. Um, definitely um, check out the other fascinating stories in here. Um, what She Ate by Laura Shapiro. Um, I'm so glad you could join us today. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be in Brooklyn. All right. And uh, thanks, everyone, at Heritage Radio. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. For listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network, presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Are you one of the millions of Americans who have trouble digesting gluten, or are you looking to shed a few pounds by shifting towards a low-carb diet? Well, we've got just the answer for you. Almond flour. Made with 100% sweet almonds, it's the perfect alternative to traditional white flours. Alternative flours are sweeping the nation and taking the baking industry by storm. Welcome to Fresh Pickings. I'm your host, Kat Johnson, and today we're looking at one small nut's journey through the mill and how almond flour can transform everything you thought you knew about baking. On this episode, I'll talk to our resident almond flour expert, Cynthia Cherish Malloran, host of the new podcast, Wedding Cake, here on HRN. She'll talk about the nutritional benefits of almond flour and how the grain is processed. Then I'll invite Eli Sussman, host of The Line and co-owner and chef of Samisa, to teach us his recipe for almond cake using Bob's Red Mill's almond flour. So stay tuned. I'm here with Katie Mosman-Wadler, the executive director of Heritage Radio Network. So Katie... It's 4.30 in the afternoon. How are you feeling? I mean, I'm always hungry, but at 4.30, this is the time when I start to think about cookies and how much I would like to have a cookie right now. <laughs> I'm thinking about snacks. Well, we probably shouldn't have cookies for an afternoon snack. What about something healthy like almonds? Yeah, that sounds okay. 
not super exciting. I really want a cookie. Okay, well, maybe we could compromise. What if we made cookies using almond flour? We can use it in place of the white flour, and almond flour is high in protein, low in carbs, and low in sugar, so it'll be a lot healthier. That actually sounds so delicious. I think we should do it. Yeah, we can have our cookies and eat them too. All right, good deal. And now let's hear about the origins of almond flour and the benefits of using it from our very own expert, Cynthia Cherish Malloran, a.k.a. DJ Cherish the Love. Cynthia is the host of our new show on HRN Wedding Cake, and she's also a killer DJ and even an ordained minister. So let's start from the beginning. Where does the magical nut, the almond, come from? Hey, so the almond is native to an area stretching from the northern Indian subcontinent westwards to Syria, Israel, and Turkey. It was spread by humans in ancient times along the shores of the Mediterranean into northern Africa and southern Europe, and more recently transported to other parts of the world, notably California. California, like, always gets the best stuff. Mm -hmm. So, Cynthia, I've heard a rumor that almonds aren't actually nuts. Is that true? That is absolutely right, Kat. The almond seed or fruit is not a true nut, but a droop. The almond is actually the seed of the fruit that grows on almond trees, a medium-sized tree that bears fragrant pink and white flowers. And like its cousins, peach, cherry, and apricot trees, the almond tree bears fruit with stone-like seeds or pits within. The seed of the almond fruit is what we refer to as the almond nut. So could you eat the fruit that the almond grows in? No, you know, you really can't. And when I was a kid, I went to visit an almond orchard, and I remembered picking what I thought was an apple off of the tree, bit into it, pretty awful, threw it out, grabbed another, quote, apple, bit into it, and my cousin said, that's not an apple, that's an almond. And he broke open the, quote, apple, and there it was one almond. So I know that almonds are very healthy. What about the health benefits of almonds? Well, I'm glad you asked because there is a plethora of great health benefits in almonds. More than 65% of the fat in almond flour is monounsaturated, which is excellent for maintaining healthy cholesterol levels and good overall heart health, which we all love. Additionally, scientists find that almond consumption can reduce the risk of coronary heart disease by keeping blood vessels healthy. Almonds also help manage post-meal blood glucose levels, the presence of insulin in the blood, and oxidative damage, and they raise antioxidant levels in the blood after a meal. I had no idea that they did all those things, so maybe they should say an almond a day keeps the doctor away. Yeah, maybe closer to like um, a handful of almonds, but yes, they do have incredible benefits. It sounds like these nuts, sorry, fruits, have a lot more than meets the eye. Anything else we should know? Yes, plenty. Almonds are notoriously healthy nuts, providing a good amount of manganese and vitamin E, as well as a healthy serving of monounsaturated fats in each quarter cup serving. Because not only do almonds have a healthy boost of protein, they are also very low in carbohydrates and inherently gluten-free, which I love. So when they're ground into a flour, they add moistness and a rich, nutty taste to baked goods. And I'm going to be making a couple of almond flour gluten-free cakes on my show wedding cake this season that's awesome well thanks so much for all this great info cynthia you're welcome
let's turn to Eli Sussman, who is going to teach us how to use this awesome ingredient. Eli is the host of The Line here on Heritage Radio Network, and he's the chef and co-owner of Samisa, along with his brother, Max. Hey, Kat. So almond flour is made from almonds that have been blanched to remove the skins and then ground to a fine texture that is great for baking. So replacing 25% of the flour in your baking with almond flour will add wonderful texture and flavor while reducing the total carbohydrates. It can be used in savory applications as well in place of breadcrumbs and meatballs or even as a coating for chicken and fish. Awesome. So how do you use almond flour in your cooking at Samisa? We've been using almond flour in this really delicious uh, dessert that we make. It's an almond cake. We make it in these uh, small bunt pans, and then once we pop them out, we dust them with uh, powdered sugar. They're really nice, bite-sized, really delicious. That sounds so good. Thanks for sharing. So I will definitely be by Samisa soon to try that. Thanks to Cynthia for schooling me on almonds and to Eli for sharing his tips on using almond flour. You can find his recipe for Samisa's almond cake at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's just about everything you could want to know about almond flour. And this is the season finale of Fresh Pickings. If you liked what you heard, be sure to check out all of the episodes and learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients, including some delicious recipes and great coupon offers by going to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Bob's Red Mill believes in good food for all. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm Kat Johnson, and thanks for joining us.